Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at the solution to all the world's problems. So, recently there was a a speech by a president of a, a once great nation that seems to be on decline, much as uh, Rome was on decline at the time of Jesus Christ, and certainly during the time of the early church, it had gone from an original republic uh, to an indirect democracy to a imperial dictatorship. And we have chronicled that history because that uh, in that history we find the nature of sin and the nature of mankind and the nature that uh, we were to, told to follow in Christ. And uh, we also see the departure from that nature and the departure from the way and the departure from the Ten Statements we call Ten Commandments that are telling us how the world works and if we go against how the world works uh, according to the nature of creation certain things are going to take place there's a cause and effect universe if you go this way this is going to happen if you go that way that's going to happen and understanding those cycles uh, what the Hebrews would call somak uh, the patterns uh, is very important to understanding why sin is so bad. That sin is not, you know, like a list of you did this, you did that, and so we're going to tally these up, and you did this good thing over here, and we're going to tally these up, and we're going to weigh them against each other. The reality is that if you go against the nature of creation, the nature of God, the nature of what we are supposed to be doing and become doers of something else. And we equate this with the difference between light and darkness, truth and a lie, that there's going to be repercussions. And those repercussions, as we have explained in our uh, shows and articles on the wrath of God, the wrath of God is simply those repercussions, the consequences the cause and effect. If you do this, these things are going to happen. And you're going to call it the judgment of God or the wrath of God or, you know, karma or you, you can put all kinds of names on it, but it's cause and effect. And Jesus didn't come to remove cause and effect, but he came to show us the way that we might be saved. Not just we, but the whole world might be saved. And so what did Jesus tell us to do that we might not be doing today? That would seem to be really important to understand what we are doing today that would be contrary to the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And uh, there certainly are a lot of those things that would be contrary to the, the doctrines, the teachings 
uh, of Jesus Christ, and people don't seem to understand what it is that they're not doing right. And it's been a long time in coming, this strong delusion. We were warned that there'd be a strong delusion. We we were warned that many would say, Lord, Lord, but they wouldn't be doers of the word. We were told that many would say they're Christians, that say they're following Christ, but were actually workers of iniquity. We were told that you had to be born again. But how do you tell if you're born again? It goes on in the same verses, if you read on, that if you don't love the light, but are a lover of the darkness, if you don't love the truth, but prefer the lie, you're not really born again. If you are a worker of iniquity, if you're a doer of evil, it's evidence that you're not really born again. You're just under, you know, that strong delusion. But that's always the other guy. You're not under a strong delusion, right? You are the true faithful, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And you're not going to let any doubt in. In other words, you're not going to question your faith. Test your faith. And of course, the test of faith is, are you doing the will of the Father? Are you doing the will of God? Are you doing what Christ said to do? Because if you're not, then you probably are one of those guys under the strong delusion. <laughs> so, and so, I contend with lots of different people and, uh, and listen to what they have to say and they ask questions and they, uh, make statements and I ask questions and I make statements and, and unfortunately a lot of the time I'm getting the deer in the headlight look like I'm not making it clear, which, drives me to, you know, deeper prayer, deeper search to try to say these things clear and clear so that no one can deny them. But they can't because they live in darkness. They don't want to see. They they want to think they already see, but they don't. So, I came across, you know, I was planning, I've got numerous Show's plan, uh, study of John, study of First uh, John. Uh, I was going to go into the idea of Lady Godiva and charity and fervent charity. We have articles all up on that. And, you know, there's so much, everything, no matter where you start, it all comes back to the basics of the doctrine of Jesus. And even if you read in John, you know, that you have to preach Christ first. It, the doctrine has to be the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Any other doctrine than the doctrine of Jesus Christ is false. Now, you'll find elements of the doctrines of Jesus Christ in lots of different philosophers, uh, social reformers, like Buddha was really a social reformer. He said, the sight of me is not your salvation. Don't make me a god. He he said all these things. And and he lived 400 years before Christ and there was need for reform. And as we go through our article on fervent charity, we'll see that there are other philosophers in China and Japan and and the the Sikhs uh, have a lot of the elements of Christ in them. 
And that's a, that's a good thing. But you should not become a religion. You know, and I, your identity is not in a religion. In the sense, when I use the word religion, I use it in the sense that is often used what you think about God. You know, this group thinks this about God, this group thinks that about God. And we put a label on this group over here and we call it a religion. You know, this is a Jew, or this is a Pharisee, or this is a Sadducee, or this is a Sikh, or this is a, uh, you know, a Baptist, or uh, a Lutheran. And we put these labels on these religions, using the word again in the sense of what some group thinks about God. But that's identity politics. That your group, you know, you identify with your group. You're an individual created by God. All your rights are granted to you as an individual created by God. Now, you might get in a group where you waive certain rights and you get certain privileges. and You know, you could go back into the bondage of Egypt, God forbid. Nobody wants to go back into the bondage of Egypt. We were told by God never to go back there again. And, and if Jesus came to teach us the will of God, he would agree with that. We should not go back to the bondage of Egypt. But, of course... Everybody has. <laughs> Almost everybody in the world has gone back to the bondage of Egypt, which is why we see the decline in the civilizations all around the world. And, and when this uh, recent president gave his little speech, I actually listened to some of the commentaries, and then they they played parts of the speech. And uh, I don't know if it was supposed to be the state of the nation or what, but... Uh, it was a little bizarre, and the observations of a lot of the people were bizarre. Uh, but none of them really got down to the solution, which is always Christ. It always comes back to Christ. He is the solution. But it has to be the real Christ, the real Jesus Christ. You know, even when I say the phrase, Jesus Christ, his last name isn't Christ. And this was so common back then, you know, like, I mentioned in in one of the recent programs, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was not his name. Julius was his clan, and Caesar was his family name. His name was actually Gaius. (laughs) So, uh, that was his actual... And uh, Augustus Caesar, his name wasn't Augustus, his name wasn't Caesar. His name was Octavius. And he was adopted into the family of Caesar. So he could be called Caesar. That's actually the family name. It became a sort of office. But really it was the family name of Julius Caesar. And Julius the clan, Caesar the family name. So Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. And Christ, of course, means anointed. Messiah means anointed. So everywhere you see the word Christ, you could you could put the word anointed there you could put the word messiah there but what is the significance of that word messiah and anointed and christ well david was anointed he was called the messiah the anointed and he was anointed because he was to be the king and jesus when you say jesus christ you're saying jesus the king 
Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed. And he was called the King. He was called the King by the crowd. He was called the King by angels. He was called the King by Pontius Pilate. But today, everybody's got a president or a prime minister. They don't really have a king. Er, er, Today, everybody has a daily ministration, but it's down at the offices of their king or their president or their prime minister or their czar. (laughs) You know, or the head, what what do they call the head of the CCP? (laughs) So, that's where they go to get their benefits. They don't go to church to get their benefits. They go to get the church to get their ears tickled. You know, to be told they're saved already. You know, that they're born again already. Don't, don't read the other verses that say that you can't be doing evil and be born again. A lot of people say, well, I'm born again, so I can't do evil. <laughs> And so the evil you see me doing is not really evil because I'm born again and I'm saved no matter what I do. But of course, that's not the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's some other doctrine. But people don't want to see that because they want to believe in their belief. They don't want to believe in the truth. Which brings up another topic that I need to do a whole show on, probably a couple of shows because it's a big topic. It's Logos, the Word. You know, like I said, the, the, the word Rima means Word. And the word Logos supposedly means Word, but it actually means right reason. The amazing thing is that when you really start to uncover the truth about yourself first and then the truth about Christ, and then the truth about Christ, and the truth about the gospel, and and the truth about the word, reveals more truth about yourself. You see, the journey to the kingdom is the journey within. Because the kingdom of God is within you. It says that, right? It's within you. So you have to look at your own heart, and your own mind, and see the truth about them. And, and In other words, to look at your own heart and mind, And shine light or allow light to shine in on you. You personally. The world's full of distractions and full of shadows and full of distortions so that you don't actually see the truth about yourself. And therefore, you will never see the truth about Christ if you don't want to see the truth about yourself. But if you want to just believe, I'm already saved... I don't have to look at myself. I don't have to look at what I'm doing. What I'm doing doesn't even matter. I'm just saved because I I save myself by thinking a thought. That's just not, that's not according to the gospel. You cannot save yourself. You can be saved. And you can be saved because you're willing to see the truth. You're willing to hear the word, the logos. See, logos means right reason. Divine reason. The Bible is logical. Everything in the Bible is logical. But the interpretation, the private interpretations that we see coming down to us through these religions, using the word in the sense of these identity groups, that that word is not necessarily, that interpretation is not necessarily right reason. 
Because through sophistry, sophistry they distort the truth. So it's, it's virtually unrecognizable. But the more light you bring into the room, the more light you bring into your heart, the more you can see these things. But I warn you, it can be painful. So a question came up on one of these home church groups. And the guy is always putting up questions. I comment to him and he never addresses my comments. It's almost like, I I don't know, maybe it's a conspiracy (laughs) that he doesn't want to address them. They've decided don't 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 talk to the guy with the cowboy hat. So on the day of Pentecost, he asks, there were about thirteen different countries represented, and three thousand people got saved. What do you suppose their gatherings looked like when everyone went home? Well. To me, that, that's easily answered. And, you know, about 13 different countries, it may have been a lot more than that because countries were actually a lot smaller. Uh, there were lots of countries within the Roman Empire. I mean, literally, Corinth was like a country. Galatia was like a country. They were really just city-states, but they were like a country. They had their own leader and their own system of taxation. Now, if they were within the Roman Empire, they were, you know, they were under the coverture of the Roman Empire, there would be Roman taxes as well. Paul was from a particular Cilicia that was not, for a long time, was not under the Roman Empire. It was protected probably because of its location. And it's cooperation. And of course they probably did have some Roman taxes because wherever Rome built a road, the road might be taxed. You know, you know, the Appian Way. You gotta pay if you go on the Roman, on the road. And if you, and how you paid would be determined by, you know, foot traffic, uh, if you're bringing donkeys, you know, leading three or four donkeys of, with supplies, or if you're bringing carts. You know, if you had one axle on your cart, that does a certain tax. And if you had two axles on your ta- cart, that'd be another tax. If you had an 18-wheeler, I suppose there'd be all kinds of taxes. The more you hauled, the more you'd be charged for the use of the road. Now, knowing that may have a value, but I tell you what would be really interesting to know, in my opinion, when I discovered it, was that if you were a minister of the Ecclesia of Christ, you would be exempt from many of those taxes. When you go through a port of entry, they would not tax what you were bringing. Because it was believed that you were bringing supplies to help the needy of society. Because that's what religion was before it became an identity group. And it's been, been that way off and on throughout the ages. People began to identify with their particular religious philosophy. And then, you know, if you, and then of course those religious philosophies divide up into all kinds of different denominations. You know, we see that with the Lutheran and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Jehovah Witnesses and, and the Catholics and all these different groups that all claim to be Christian. 
but they're different groups. They're different denominations. And of course, anybody, I mean, it's just fundamental. There's only one denominator of Christianity, and that's Christ, which is why we see John and Paul and, you know, preaching Christ first. If, if the doctrine isn't in accordance with the doctrine of Christ, then it isn't Christian. It's something else. And, and we don't condemn anybody for that, but they may be condemning themselves, depending on how far away from the doctrine of Christ they get. So the people at Pentecost, what was going on at Pentecost? The, Jesus was the king. Rome said he was the king. Angels said he was the king. Uh, crowd said he was the king. He's doing things that only the king could do. Casting out the money changers. That was only something. Well, well, the high priest could do it. But the king could do it since the days of David. And that appears to be what Christ is doing. Because he made this little string whip one round. Said, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And all those guys going to make this big bucks on in the month of Adar weren't going to make it because they just got fired by the king. He had already been in the treasury, the, actually into the royal treasury. That's a very important thing I thought about this morning, is there's two words in the New Testament used to be translated into treasury. One is this, like, gastrophone, this royal treasury. And Jesus was in that royal treasury and start instructing the ministers of that treasury. What the heck is he doing in there? Well, he's the king. The, the evidence is right there. I mean, he's proclaimed king. He's called the Christ. That means Messiah. Hail the highest son of David. The highest son of David is the rightful heir to the throne. Nobody else was sitting on the throne since the days of Herod Antipas, uh, Herod uh, the Great died. Herod Antipas was somewhere else. Philip was somewhere else. But in Jerusalem, there was no king until Jesus came triumphantly into there and said, I'm the king. Well, he didn't actually have to say it because self-testimony is not really the way of Christ. That would that, That's not even humble. You know, even when he talked to Pontius Pilate, thou sayest it, I'm a king. I'm not saying I don't have to say it. The crowds were saying it and the Pharisees were trying to shut him up. But he was. He's just not your king. You got another king. You go eat at the table of another king, another ruler, another man who exercises authority, and you don't go to church for your daily ministration. You don't practice pure religion. Pure religion is taking care of all the needy in your congregations through faith, hope, and charity. Unspotted by the world. And that word world there is constitutional order or system of government. It's the same word that's used when Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate. And he says, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. The, the world of Pontius Pilate, the constitutional order and system of government. You ain't got no jurisdiction. And that's why Pilate washed his hands. But let's find out what the church looked like on that Pentecost when we come back. 
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, Matthew 10.34 says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That sounds kind of violent. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like that. That could be a threat to our democracy. <laughs> if I had a democracy, I suppose I would consider that a threat. But the reality is, is uh, the word sword there, he means in the sense of division. Because he said, you know, he lives by the sword, dies by the sword, and, you know, is destroyed by the sword. So he wasn't really trying to get people to all get swords to go out there and fight the evil. He was fine with everybody owning a sword, and he actually even advised all his apostles, if you don't have a sword, you ought to go get one. Even if you have to sell your coat, you ought to go get a sword. So, Jesus has nothing against people having, you know, a sword or a gun or any of those things. That's your individual choice. That's between you and God. You know, there was a time when you know, every time I would go to town with the family, I would carry a gun. And then there was a time when I didn't always do that. And so now you just have to figure out whether I'm doing it or not. Because I only pick up a gun and put it in the car when I'm led to do it. I'm not always led to do it. Because the key thing is to be led by the Holy Spirit. Because that's the way. It's not led by doctrines of men. But if you're led by the Holy Spirit, one of the ways to know whether you're following the Holy Spirit or following just some spirit is are you in conformity to the doctrine of Jesus? Because if you actually understand the doctrine of Jesus, that's a that's a good guidepost. That's a good barometer. You could use the Ten Commandments as well because the Ten Commandments are really the Ten Statements or the Ten Guideposts showing you that if you're not keeping these Ten Guideposts in your heart and in your way and in the way you live your life, then there's going to be consequences. You're straying from the formula, so to speak. But Pentecost was that point of division. You know, that point where the sword divided the people. The the sword of his division was dividing the people. Now, he'd been preaching this for a long time, and people were making this choice. Even John the Baptist, people were making this choice. Uh, I've thought several times about the fact that when Paul got to Ephesus, he comes across several disciples of John the Baptist. Or over the, way over there in Ephesus... They don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know where they've been all this time. But they hadn't really heard anything about Jesus. They may have heard some rumors, but they didn't really understand. And Paul explained, and they go like, oh, we'll have some of that. And uh, Paul ended up saying they started a school to teach people the way of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, which is really the way of Moses and Abraham. And all the prophets. That That's another revelation that I, when I discovered that, hey, they're all talking about the same thing. Then I started thinking, most people don't know that they're all talking about the same thing. Because most people are caught up in identity religion. 
You know, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Catholic, I'm a, I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee. It all gives them a sense of identity and can give them a sense of righteousness. You know, virtue signaling. Because I do what, you know, I do what the Baptists do. All you other guys, you, you do weird things. But that's denominationalism. That isn't Christ. Christ is the denominator. Christ's doctrines are the doctrines that you would use to measure whether or not you're actually following the way. And like I said, there's lots of such measuring devices. As a matter of fact, that's one of the prophecies is supposedly going to be four carpenters who are going to measure the kingdom. (laughs) So, uh, I'm a carpenter. Maybe I'm doing that. But I, I, I sure hope there's a lot of other guys out there doing that. And of course, you should be doing that. So anyway, my first response to this question, what do you suppose the gatherings looked like when everyone went home? Because the individual asking the question, little heads up, he's a home church person, which I'm a big advocate of having home congregations, you know, where, you know, ten families get together and they maybe meet in one home. Chances are the guy with the biggest home is where they're going to meet. Because that makes sense, you know. I mean, I knew a guy lived in San Francisco. All the houses in San Francisco, you know, at least in the Sunset District, are about the same. You know, they were so uh, tight uh, on the lots, because the lots were all pretty small. They were so tight on all the lots that they, there was no space between them. You couldn't put your finger between the houses. If you, you want to get in the backyard, you have to go through one of the houses. There's no way to get into the backyard areas of, of the houses uh, without going through one of the houses. And the garage was underneath, and there was usually a little room or two underneath, and then most people lived upstairs because they're almost all two-story houses. But I had a friend who lived in the same sunset area. His house was not like that. It was a little lot. But it was a little tiny house. Him and his three brothers lived in that house. He was a friend of mine from the seminary. Spielbauer was his name. He he should be as old as me now. Anyway, uh, that house was tiny. Just tiny. And there was all kinds of... You could walk all the way around it in the same kind of lot. And their living room was the entryway, hallway. They had a couch in the hallway. And they would all sit on the couch, and the TV was at the end of the hallway. <laughs> that was their living room. And then you go from there into the kitchen. And the bedrooms were so small that if you open the drawer, you couldn't take your feet out of the bed because that's where the drawer was. I mean, it was it was tiny. But they, they lived there. And uh, I think his father was... Uh, well, I know his father and mother, his father was like German and Spielbauer, that's a, that's a German name. And his mother was, I think, Cuban. And, uh, it's been a long time. And, uh, they were pretty tight, uh, and cozy family in that little tiny house, which is fine. And, but most of the houses were, were done differently. And so, the question 
of dealing with this idea of what the congregations look like. I mean, you couldn't have ten families meet at his house. It's just too small. I mean, you would all be crammed in there, you know, like sardines. So if they were going to have a congregation that would meet in a home, it would have to be one of those other bigger homes. And that's, of course, that's the practicality of it. And that's probably the way the people gathered. But what did that look like? What were they doing? What? Why were they gathering? What? What was religion to these people? Well, this is this is what I've I've done now. I've I have a page on Pentecost, but I've added this conversation that followed on this group. I was actually still waiting, hoping that somebody would respond by this morning, and we would take it even a little step further. But there were several responses, not from the guy who originally posted it. He, he never challenges my statements. But my first response uh, to his question was, uh, what changed for Christians at Pentecost? Uh, what did they repent of? Because they weren't just to get baptized. They were to repent and get baptized. And what happened when they got baptized? Was there any repercussions to that? But anyway, I write, those who actually believed in Jesus as the Christ repented of the public religion set up by Herod and the Pharisees through their version of Corban. Remember, Jesus said the Corban of the Pharisees was making the word of God did not affect. Well, Corban was a Hebrew word that we find all over the Old Testament, uh, which we will study in detail, we have, we have studies up, articles up. But it, Corbin meant offering. It was basically a free will offering. But the system set up by Herod was that you registered, you signed up to your synagogue. Synagogues were ten families. That's what they were at that time. That's just historically, anybody who studies history knows synagogues were ten families. And that those ten families got together and they were registered with that synagogue and that synagogue was registered with the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem. They had this huge treasury that you put funds in. Now there were two treasuries, as I said. One was the gastrophone which was the royal treasury. That's the treasury of Herod, the treasury of the king. That was evidently the treasury of Jesus Christ because he's in the gastrophone giving instructions to the ministers of the gastrophone. Wow. So he had access to this treasury as the king. He just fired the money changers. They're, they're, they were going to get clips of the coin, but now the coins were going to go into the treasury. But, of course, there were king taxes, but then there was Corban, which means offering in the Hebrew. And that word Corban is even translated, I mean, you see it as Corban in the New Testament. They just write Corban, and most people don't know what Corban. But it was, their Corban was making the word of God to none effect, so that sons would do no more ought for their parents. Because Corban was a system of social security. And there was even a riot in that Jesus mentions to Pontius Pilate. There was a riot because Pontius Pilate took funds from the Corban 
to pay for an aqueduct that brought water in to Jerusalem. Now, I can see the logos, let's call it that, logos of Pontius Pilate, why he thought that was okay to do. Because he, he knew that Corbin was there for the welfare of the people and putting an aqueduct in and bringing fresh water into Jerusalem, which was getting to be a sizable city. That was a good thing. That was for the benefit of the people. And he thought you should be able to take that money and use it for that purpose. And evidently Pharisees thought so too because they provided. But, at, at you know, probably Herod was the one, not Herod, but Pontius Pilate's people were the ones who built the aqueduct because centurions were engineers. That's what they did. They built aqueducts and dams and roads and harbors. And they did it all to make money. And, you know, the fees they charged were called taxes. There were other taxes, but that was one of the basics. So anyway, but the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God the non effect. It was still offerings given in through the synagogues and all the way up into the treasury of the temple. And it was still there to help out the needy of society in a form of religion. That's what religion is, is taking care of the needy of society. You know, widows and orphans and and people who go blind and cripples, etc., to help them out. But their Corbin, their offerings, was making the word of God to none effect. Why? Because they were based on force. If you signed up, you were required to pay in a percentage of what you produced into that Corbin. And they had people to go around and see that you did it. They would even, like I said, count the branches of the little Cummings plants that might be in your windowsill, you know, because they know, well, I get one, you know, out of every ten of those branches. That's supposed to come to us. That's why it was making the Word of God to none effect, because it wasn't based on charity anymore. It was based on compelled offerings. This, This throughout the Bible, from Cain and Abel to Nimrod, this has been the Key division between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous mammon and the unrighteous mammon. The righteous mammon has to be by individual choice. And if you're not playing identity religion or identity politics, then the choice is probably still in your hands. But if you're going to play these things, then the choice is going to be somebody else is going to make the choice for you. And you're just going to become... Merchandise. And we we can go through how that all takes place. But let's get this clear picture of what was going on at Pentecost. Because Christ was offering a system. It was in the temple. The apostles would work daily in the temple. Taking care of the needy of society. Through free will offerings. While the synagogue of Satan. The table of devils was set by forced offerings. One is by charity, one is by force. One is an entitlement, one is by hope that people will be there for you. One sets the captive free, one brings them under fealty. It's a snare. That's what the Bible says. It's a snare. It's a deceitful meats. The dainties of rulers are deceitful meats. They'll bring you back into bondage. Now that's basically... Logos 
That is the basic logic. That is the basic reason. And we've written a whole book, Covenants of the Gods, free online. Show you how that comes about according to the laws of nature, Trucentium, the the civil law, the Roman law, the Roman civil law, the same systems of jurisprudence. Where you become a surety for debt and literally merchandise and curse your children with that debt that is unpayable. But those who got the baptism of Jesus Christ were cast out. They were literally put out. When the people received the baptism of Christ at Pentecost, they were put out of the system of Corbin, the system of social welfare, the social safety net of the Pharisees and Herod. That was making the word of God to none effect because it wasn't based on charity. It wasn't based on love. It was based on force. It was what we would call today, well, if you understand terms, we certainly were calling it this in the 1850s. It was called legal charity. It, it is literally public religion. It is the religion of the government. The government's going to provide for the widows and orphans and needy of your society through forced offerings, and that is contrary to the way of Christ, but everybody goes along with it because they got their churches, their denominational churches, tickling their ears, telling them that they're saved already because they're born again. Don't look behind the curtain where we'll see behind your heart you are still biting one another, still coveting your neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority, even though Christ said it was not to be that way with you. And you think you're a Christian. So the people by necessity needed to immediately organize congregations through a charitable network of servant ministers and elders, which is the heads of families in patterns and companies of tens, which Christ already showed them how to sit down in these ranks of tens, one uh, hundreds, thousands, back there when they had 50,000 or 5,000 men in their families, uh, when the loaves and fishes showed up on the scene. He commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in this pattern. Which is, you know, ten families is a synagogue. So those are the synagogues of Christ. Those ten families. But they were free assemblies. They weren't registered. They were registered in the fact that they knew who each other were. You know, I knew my minister. My minister knows nine other ministers. Those ministers pick a minister. He knows nine other ministers like himself. And so we're all networked together. There are no widows and orphans that are overlooked because everybody's a part of a congregation. And you can keep track of ten people. But if you if you don't have that network, you cannot keep track of a hundred people or a thousand people for sure. Or certainly five thousand men and their families. So Christ knew the necessity of this required that his ministers organize the people. So that's what it looked like. And of course, they're not just... Organizing with the guys sitting next to them. They're organizing based on their communities geographically. Because if you're going to help out the widows and orphans of your community, hopefully they live pretty close by. Which is why we set up the network based on geography. So that you could, you know, as more and more people join it from Texas or from California or from Oregon, we can put them in touch with people that are local. I just saw somebody messaging somebody on 
in Colorado. I think the last time uh, he responded to a message was in 2021, and he just sent out a message in 2022. I'm actually going through Colorado, near where I think he is, uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, might have a chance to meet with some people. I don't know. Join on the network. Find out. Set it up. We'll see what we can do. But uh, anyway, so this gathering of this living network of free assemblies was going in order to take care of the needy of your society without engaging in the covetous practices of the world, the legal charity of the world. You know, that is overseen by the fathers of the earth. You know, Jesus said, call no man father. Well, of course, uh, we've explained that the emperor was called Patronus, our father who art in Rome. That's what Patronus meant. And all the senators were called fathers. Father Cicero, Patri Cicero, Patri Seneca. And they were setting the table of Rome. And just as Herod was setting, and the Pharisees were setting the table of his religion, his social welfare net, his social safety net. But they were doing it through forced offerings, compelled offerings, required offerings. And that was making the word of God to none effect. Because it wasn't based on love. It wasn't based on charity. Charity and love, same words in, in the Greek. You know, when Paul says it, they translate it charity. When Jesus says it, they most often translate it love. So either you have a system based on love or you have a system based on force. You have a system based on charity or you have a system based on compelled offerings. Compelled offerings will produce legal charity. Being bound charity. You're forced to give to your neighbor. You're forced to pay off your neighbor's student loans. Well, see, you've gone this way that is completely contrary to the ways of Christ, and you're wondering why you're having problems in the world. Polybius said it would degenerate the people. Plutarch said it ruined Rome to have a system of free bread that was based on forced offerings. You know, so as is basic. Now, someone responded to my statement uh, they, that the people would have, because I'm talking about repentance, repenting from this covetous practice of desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor through men who exercise authority. Christ forbid that. But that's what they had. the Pharisees had been doing. And unfortunately, it's what most of the Christians are doing today. Because most churches, and certainly most home churches, have no daily ministration to take care of the needy of their society that isn't heavily spotted by the world. And that word, world is constitutional order or system of government, which Jesus' kingdom is not of. It, it's separate. And we see evidence of that. We won't go into that right now. But he says what they have repent of, what most churches, what most church people do when they finally realize the gospel is personal for them, and the gospel is personal for each of us, is that I can do it syndrome. He calls it the I can do it syndrome. 
that they can save themselves. Well, of course, I don't believe you can save yourself. You can't save yourself by thinking you're not a part of the I can do it syndrome. <laughs> I know how to please God from my own resources, which he says is the idea of Cain did. And that's actually not true. Because Cain was not uh, pleasing God from his resources. Cain was pleasing God from plowing the Adama. You've got to remember, Adam and Eve were from the Adama. That's, we translate it clay. But he took this clay, he molded this Adama, whatever this Adama is. He, in a, if you know Hebrew... Everything in the Hebrew language has an abstract and and, and an objective uh, meaning. So, what was Cain plowing? Well, we'll have to talk about that another time. Come back after the break and we'll tell you more about what they were doing at Pentecost that saved Christians. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So... What what are we learning about Pentecost? The one of the responses there was only one person who responded. Most other people they they must know me or something. I don't know. They don't respond to these statements. But anyway, uh, he did say that that somehow he he was thinking that uh, that because I, I I'm going to have to assume that he believes that. We are just saved by grace, by the grace of Christ, and some people say by the blood of Jesus Christ, etc. We're saved by that because we what? We say we accept Christ, but yet Christ's gospel says not those who say, but those who are doers of the word. So right away, if that's where he's going with this, I already see that's not the doctrine of Jesus, and so therefore I should turn away from that. Paul says that, John says that, Peter says that, James says that. So, and we, we have to go by the doctrine of Jesus. So, the idea that you just say or think a thought and that you're automatically saved is, is a false doctrine because it's not the doctrine of Jesus. Very clearly, he says, not those who say, but those who do it. So, this is how you tell whether somebody is, you know, maybe saved because, you know, you don't see everything they do. But... Uh, at least you can, you know, if you see them doing evil, you know, well, that person's not born again because they're doing evil. And of course, you want to get the whole story. You want to, want to find out well, what did they do? <laughs> what what are they what are they doing? What are they saying? Uh, and we don't have to judge, but we do have to judge occasionally. You know, like if I was going to hire somebody, I don't want to hire a thief. You know, if, if I was going to leave my kids with somebody, I don't want to. Leave him with somebody who's a child molester, you know. So yeah, you have to, you have to make some discerning choices. And the idea a lot of people are saying, well, they're a Christian. You know, that, that's a common thing that people say. Well, uh, that individual who who puts people on drugs, cheats on his wife, uh, abuses his family. Uh, uh, threatens and harasses his neighbor. He does all kinds of bad things. But somebody said, "Well, he, but he's saved because he said he accepted Jesus Christ into his per, uh, into his heart as his savior." Well, maybe he's a liar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> maybe he's just said it and he doesn't really mean it. 
Because by his actions, I would suspect that, no, he's not born again. And he's not walking in the spirit. So, so, but this is the, how delusional people get. Of course, you're not that delusional. Absolutely. But anyway, uh, this idea of Cain being at his own resources. No, Cain was using the resources of others. And you say, well, there was no others. There were no other people then. It was only Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And there was nobody else. Who's the gals from Nod that he marries? <laughs> Well, who are they? Where they come from? Uh, well, you know, that, there's all kinds of people trying to interpret. Adama are the people. We were told to replenish the earth. Evidently, there was something disastrous that took place and the people were not, you know, the earth needed replenishing. Very clearly, the word replenishing needed to be put in there. Now, I'm not taking away that God created the earth and all that stuff. I'm just saying... Your private interpretation of the Hebrew language is maybe not 100% correct. And I, I can base it on reason. I can base it on logic. I can base it on the Holy Spirit. I base it on the Holy Spirit. But then I went back and got the reasons later and tried to show people. So the difference between Adam and or Cain and Abel was the way in which they created the offerings that were on their altars. But then you need to know what altars were. And of course, Abraham had altars. Moses had altars. And literally, Jesus Christ had altars. But by the time we're reading Jesus Christ, we're reading the Greek, and we realize that the apostles were the living altar, the living stones, the lively stones of the altar of Christ, which is always what it was meant to be. We weren't to build big buildings and put all our money in some sort of treasury, whether it's the Gastaphone or the Corbin, because Corbin is translated treasury in the Bible, because that's where they put the Social Security funds. But, of course, in the United States, there is no division of funds. You can you can say, well, these are the Social Security funds, and these are the Gastaphone, the, the, the treasury of the government. But according to the law in the United States, there is no division of funds. And so, therefore, there, if, if the gastrophone is in debt, which is a, it's not a full of gold, it's full of debt, uh, then, then there is no funds in the, in the social security fund because there is no division. That they must both be used to cover that debt. Well, of course, they've been in debt for decades and they needed more collateral for that debt. So there's somebody else in that treasury. Something else is in that treasury. You, which makes you merchandise. You are surety for debt and your children are surety for that debt. So there, this is why Revelations, that talks about a full stock, including slaves and the souls of men. Because they've all gone into, you're all back in the bondage of Egypt, all back into debt. And you're all subject to forced offerings, which is the Corbin of the Pharisees, although it's the Corbin of FDR now, and there's the Corbin of LBJ, and the Corbin of Obama, and the Corbin of Biden. And they're forcing your offerings, and they have every legal right to do so, to force your offerings. And so, that's very important to understand that. 
this the Paul he also responded they would have looked like family groups alive with the life of God. Well, let's describe what that is. Well, I kind of am doing that. They would have hopefully listened to the Spirit of God making Scripture come alive as they spoke and heard the Word of God. The Word of God is the logos of God, the reasoning of God, the rationale of God. It's not just the verbiage of God, but the actual rationale. And, of course, God is the inventor of reason. (laughs) And uh, uh, they probably would have, he goes on to say, they probably would have continued in their local synagogues as well. Well, we know they would not have continued in their local synagogues because it was decreed that they would be put out. And we see that in John 9:22. These words spake his parents. That's the parents of the blind man. Who the Pharisees are, you know, he's saying, the blind man saying Jesus Christ gave him his sight. And he's calling them Christ because he's calling them the anointed. And anybody who does that is going to be put out of the synagogue. This is already ruled by the Pharisees. And it says, so these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, which is the citizens of Judea. For the Jews, the citizens of Judea, had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, Jesus, was Christ, the Messiah, the King, he should be put out of the synagogue. Canceled. And if he's put out of the synagogue, he is put out of the social welfare system of Judea, which at that time was pretty much Herod's system and the Pharisee system of Corbin. But there was another system that had started up with at least John the Baptist, where they did not force the contributions that if you... If I had two coats and you had none, I'd share with you. I'd do the same in meats. And, of course, Jesus said, well, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and do this. Share with one another and there will be plenty. There will actually be enough left over by the grace of God. But you need to understand that that Logos, which we will do a whole show on Logos, too, and uh, have already done some recordings on it, that 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 Logos is the reason of God, the rationale of God. It's not just a word, not just blank words that you don't understand and you just say these magic words and then you conjure up salvation. That's nonsense. There has to be a changing of the mind, a changing of the heart. You can't just say it. You have to be doing it and you won't be able to do it unless the word, the Logos, has really come alive. You know, we talk about the age of reason back in the 1600s and 1700s. And there was a guy, John Locke, who wrote a second treatise on government. And in that second treatise on government, he he expresses the idea that governments derive their just powers only from the consent of the governed. And that when a government infringes uh, those natural liberties, those inalienable rights, those rights endowed by God, the people have a right to overthrow it. 
and would probably he would probably would have gotten executed if his authorship of this treatise, you know, was known. But he kept it a secret. He died in 1704. But Thomas Jefferson considered him to be, you know, one of the the most enlightened men of history. You know, and and he actually also included Newton and Bacon in that, the, the three greatest men ever to live, some would say. But I know that Jefferson, you know, he wrote the Jeffersonian Bible, which is all the red letters of Jesus Christ. That's, he put that, all those red letters together. Because really, all those red letters, that's the doctrines of Jesus. Everything else is an explanation of that. Well, actually, you could probably sum up all of what Jesus taught in, in the two commandments that Jesus said, which was to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, of course, he says that those two commandments actually sum up the Ten Commandments. And, and from a point of view of reason and logos, that's absolutely true. But it may take some explanation with most people because a lot of people think the Sabbath is about counting days and honoring your father and mother means to go to bed on time and uh, keeping, um, you know, not taking the name of the Lord in vain or not create graven images has to do with statues. It doesn't. I mean, it could include statues, but that's not... That's not the real meaning of it. And if you understood Hebrew, really understood it, not just went to Hebrew class somewhere, you would, and you don't unmoor the metaphors from their meaning, you understand that, that there are God's many. <laughs> That's why there's God's many. Is because, you know, not creating graven images of God, institutions that are a substitute for God, is, is what the idolatry is all about, which is why Paul says so much like covetousness is idolatry, which we'll cover in greater detail where he says that, because he also includes several other things besides covetous, are all idolatry. But, you see, if you covet your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority... Asking those men who exercise authority, please take away from my neighbor what belongs to my neighbor, what my neighbor produced. Take away from them so that I can have free stuff. You know, get my student loans paid off, get health care, get Medicare, Medicaid, get Social Security. I want you to force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. That's a covetous practice. That makes the word of God to not affect. That condemns you. If you keep biting one another like that, even though you might do it, start out real small, you know, like, you know, let's just tax my neighbors so that I can have public school. Because public schools weren't originally the result of taxation. Public schools were the uh, result of contribution, free will contributions. It wasn't the result of legal charity. It was actual real charity. So I actually, I'm sure if I had Jefferson sitting down here, I I could get him to add Jesus Christ and probably put to the head of the list of Newton, Bacon, and John Locke, because 
Jefferson, of all his faults, he was a reasonable man. <laughs> and if you actually read all about him, you understand. I mean, that's why he's, he created the Red Letter Bible. I mean, you know, the Bible was just the words of Jesus. He went and clipped them out and kind of pasted them all together. Because <laughs> he thought that's the way we should read the Bible. And, and you know, that's an interesting exercise. I, but... You need to understand the context because when he talks about the Corbin of the Pharisees making the word of God to none effect, you got to know what the Corbin is. You got to understand that it's a social welfare system set up by Herod. The Corbin of the Pharisees was set up by Herod and the Pharisees to provide a social safety net, which allowed him to tax the people to build the temple. He needed the money to build the temple. There were other taxes that he imposed. You know, it wasn't just the temple in Jerusalem he built. He also built the temple of Roma. So understanding all that is very important in understanding the words of Jesus and what was going on at Pentecost. What were they repenting of? You know, uh, when I, I wrote to him and explained to him that they were put out of the synagogue, uh, Paul, this Paul, Paul Y, I won't give his whole name, Come back and says, good point. He says, I have made a good point for the synagogues of Nazareth. Well, see, now, he says things like that. And I understand why he says things like that. But there was no Nazareth at that time. <laughs> there's no reference in any other text, in any other, and there's lots of records, that there was a Nazareth at the time Jesus was supposedly living in Nazareth. And he was born in Bethlehem, but supposedly he was from this uh, city of Nazareth. I should make a link because I'm, I'm sure I've got an article explaining what Nazareth meant. Jesus was a Nazarene Essene, so therefore he was from the polis of the Nazarene Essene, which wasn't a local geographical city, but it was a system. See, the, the Essenes took care of all the needy of their society through charity. That was one of the unique characteristics of most Essenes, certainly the Nazarene Essenes. And so when they say we're from Nazareth, that's what they're talking about. And and if you go back and look at the Greek and look at the time and know the history, you'll understand that he didn't really live in Nazareth. And it wasn't just the synagogues of Nazareth. He, he goes on to say, we read of Paul... Uh, 20 or more years later with Barnabas going into the local synagogues. Well, yeah, they went in. But you, you have to remember that the rule that the Pharisees made, that anybody who was uh, professing Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They're talking about the synagogue network that was registered with the temple at that time. And the truth is, what happened, what Jesus won that argument. <laughs> Jesus was the king. Pontius Pilate said that Jesus was the king. And, yeah, you can kick him out all you want. But the reality is, it ended up after Pentecost that the apostles worked daily in the temple. Probably daily in the Gastaphone and the Corbin, the treasuries of the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. They now had the access because according to Rome, these are the ones who were appointed the kingdom. Now they knew full well 
that that building was going to be short-lived. The treasury was not to be put into this this system where you depended upon a central treasury. He was they were guiding the people back to where you took care of your neighbor. You were there for your neighbor in charity and love and hope that when you had need, your neighbor would stand with you as a band of brothers, not identity politics, not identity religion. Oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send him bread because he's a Lutheran. And I love Lutherans because I'm a Lutheran. No. No, it wasn't that way. That's identity religion. That's, that's gonna lead you to destruction. That's gonna lead you to communism. That's gonna lead you back into the bondage of Egypt. Where you, you don't own your labor anymore. You don't own your house. You only have a legal title to your house. Your legal title to your car. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, you need to do some more reading at preparing you. You need to join the network and find out what we're talking about. Because we back this up with thousands of footnotes showing you the law, showing you the history, showing you the meaning of the words. But if you want to think you know already, uh, you have some disappointments coming. Because like uh, the one guy said, how's that working out for you? Because, you know, people say, well, the destruction was predicted. Then Jesus Christ will come and say, when Jesus Christ comes and finds you a worker of iniquity, coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, going to the fathers of the earth for the table, which Paul calls the table of devils, which we should not eat. What's he talking about? table of devils which we should not eat see if you don't understand these things that are going on in Jerusalem and in uh, these different places so anyway he goes and says uh, we read that you know they went into synagogues of course they went into synagogues but that it was just like the the followers of John the Baptist they came on upon in Ephesus and they don't even know about Christ it's years later. They don't even know about Christ. Haven't heard. But they, when they hear, they accept it and they work together. Well, they go into some synagogues and people want to throw you out. Yeah, I can guarantee you in some of those synagogues, some of those people followed after Paul and followed after the way. And they joined the synagogues of Christ, the tens, hundreds, and thousands of Christ. And they became connected to a living temple. I mean, this Paul Y was talking about the, the Spirit of God. Listen to the Spirit of God. Well, some did. Some continued in their ways of foolishness. You know, I mean, what were the ways of foolishness at the time of Saul, the king? He forced an offering. And Samuel says, because you forced an offering to support your army, your your kingdom's going to fail. We do that all the time. And, and what happened to our army in Afghanistan? And I should say our army, the army of the United States in Afghanistan. That was one of the things in the recent speech. She said that you're going to need more than an AR-15 if you're going to fight the government. You're going to need F-15s. Well... The guys in Afghanistan didn't have F-15s. 
They do now, but <laughs> that's because your leaders left them behind. They fled because they don't they don't have God in their corner. They they they're not doing the will of the Father. And so, whatever religion you think you belong to, you need to repent and start seeking the kingdom of God. Uh, the rule, you know, I wrote back to him. The rule put out was a universal decree to all the synagogues that were signed up, registered with the temple of Herod in Jerusalem. It had been that way since Herod started this system of universal social welfare. You know, this, this scheme where you signed up and you had to pay in. That, that was the setting up the offering of the Pharisees, the Corbin of the Pharisees that was making the word of God to none effect because the son could say, well, you know, go collect your social security. I don't have to take care of you anymore. I, I give in to social security. You go get your money from social security. I don't have to honor you, which honor means to fatten, take care of you. The government will take care of you. And it caused some men to do no more ought for their families, for their parents. Well, that that goes on today all over the place. Now, some people, you know, the parents collect Social Security and the kids are there to help them. But the reality is they do less because the government is doing more. The more the government is doing for you, the less access to those inalienable rights that Locke was and Jefferson were talking about, you will have access to. You know, when they won the American Revolution, they did not cancel the debt to Great Britain. The debt still was there. They still owed the debt, and they still paid the debt. Yeah, we didn't have the situation we have today. The debt's not going away. And the debt isn't owed to the United States. The United States owes the debt. You're a surety for that debt. And the Bible talks about, Paul talks about that, being a surety for debt. Which is why Peter says it will make you merchandise. Why Proverbs says that it's, the, the dainties of rulers is deceitful meats. And, and and why it says that, you know, Paul says, David says, what should have been for your welfare will become a snare and a trap and bind you in. That's all happened. That's why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. You're entangled again in the yoke of bondage. You go to your churches, but you're waiting for Jesus. Jesus is going to cast you out into the utter darkness because you're all workers of iniquity. Because you think it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through government. Somebody said that, one of my posts, this is amazing how this got so political. Everything Jesus is talking about is political. That's why the governments were persecuting him. That's why John Locke had to publish anonymously. Because if, if, at that time, if you said they only govern by the consent of the people and not by the divine right of kings, they could be executed. Which is why Tyndale, who was told, translate the Bible, Tyndale, by the king. And then when he did it, the king had him arrested, his tongue cut out, and burned at the stake. And the church of that day bought up all the Bibles that he translated and burned them. But that gave him the money to write more. (laughs) So, anyway. We have to understand that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. But he also could be your king. If you follow the way 
of Christ and return to the way of Christ. And I had one more final post that I, I made to them we'll talk about when we return to the kingdom of God and to the keys of the kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So understanding this idea at Pentecost, that suddenly they had to provide their own social welfare for all the needy of their society, the widows and orphans and other people who were falling through the cracks of society because of a multitude of reasons. This was the social welfare net. This was what James will call pure religion. Is taking that, that's what religion was. If you go back in ancient times, you look at every, from Buddha to what have you, uh, Tao, Taoism, all these things, uh, even the Sikhs have this, uh, and that's a fairly recent religion. I happen to mention Sikhs several times because we have some visiting today. But, um, uh, they have a lot of the same values of Christ in their Philosophies, and I'll say philosophies, but those philosophies include religion. Even even Jefferson and Locke talk about this. But you either have a religion based on charity, or you have a religion based on force. And the public religions of the world today are based on force. This is why Paul is talking to the treasurer of Corinth, trying to say, you know, you guys should do it this way. Voluntary contributions. Well, now, if you looked out in America, you say, oh, we're going to, Social Security is going to now go over entirely to volunteerism. <laughs> That's not going to work. People are not ready to do that. <laughs> and so, Jesus didn't come and do away with the system of the Pharisees. He simply gave people the opportunity of choice that they would have this other opportunity. And at Pentecost, they literally could opt out of the social welfare system of the Pharisees. And because the Pharisees said so. That if you get the baptism of Jesus Christ, you're cast out. You're put out of our system of Corbin. You're not going to get any more benefits from us. All the money that you paid in is gone to you. Uh, it's in our treasury. Of course, now, your treasury, in your Social Security treasury, there is nothing. It's in debt. It's been in debt for decades upon decades. Destruction has been coming for a long time. But the wrath of God has been delayed on purpose to give you opportunity to repent. But there at Pentecost, the time was up. You needed to repent. You needed to say, okay, we're not going to covet our neighbor's goods anymore through the the Corbin of the Pharisees and Herod. We're going to start living by faith, hope, and charity according to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the will of God. We're going to take care of our needy by sitting down. Now, this this is a huge monumental task, so we're going to have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and organize ourselves so that we can actually do this. But the offerings will be free will. So the power is now in the hands of the people. That's why Wycliffe refers to the Bible as the government, the book for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Because even though, you know, you're not going to be able to micromanage your particular minister. You give him a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. You say, take care of the widows and orphans in our 
congregation and anywhere else in our network of congregations as you see fit. You can monitor what he's doing. You have a right to know what he's doing to see if he's doing a good job. If he's not doing a good job, pick another minister. Every day is voting day because your offerings are votive offerings. You know, what you give up, you give up. It's it's gone. You can't micromanage those funds. But what you're doing is giving him choice to make those decisions. You can take it back in a moment. You can't take back the funds because they're burnt up to you. That's what burnt offerings mean. We explain all that in Sacrifice of Sophistry. Look up the word sophistry at Preparing You and read the article. That's what they were doing in the Old Testament. But you have a power over the minister because if he wants to receive again, he's going to have to listen to what you say. That person there needs to do something about their drug problem or their drinking problem or their wife-beating problem. Don't keep giving to them because you're weakening them. You get that input. All the elders, the heads of all the families in the congregation of ten, give input to their minister. And a wise minister will listen to the wise counsel. But he has to act. You have to give him choice. If you want choice, if you want liberty, you have to give liberty to others to make choices. If he becomes incorrigible, you can take it away from him and do something different. That's the kingdom of God. That's the way it operates. That's what they were doing at Pentecost. That's what they were going to have to do in the weeks and the months and the years to follow Pentecost. And it saves Christians. Because they were following the way of Christ. That is the way of Christ. The perfect law of liberty. By operating by faith, hope, and charity. Faith in the way of Christ. Hope in the fact that you desire the love of your neighbor, the charity of your neighbor, if you fall on hard times. And that is what sets the captive free. You're not free now. People think, oh, we're free. No, you're not. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. You're entangled again in the yoke of bondage. You are now merchandise. You are surety for debt. Because you haven't been going the way of Christ. Paul Y. has to see that. And if he's willing to see that, then he will know what to repent of. And know what to start to seek. Because we're supposed to repent and seek the kingdom of God. I just described to you what the kingdom of God looks like. And his righteousness. It's righteousness because it's based on charity, not on force. It's, it's If you want to be set free, you have to set free others. And when everybody got the baptism of Jesus Christ, they were setting their neighbor free. They're saying, we're not going to force you to contribute anymore. The apostles all received that instruction from Christ. You go to the people and you say, okay, what do you owe? And they, they say, well, I, I really should pay this much, but I don't have it. Well, then you're arrested and I'm going to put you into jail. You know, the kings of the earth just hired 80,000 new Gabi and Molkai, which they call the IRS now. Uh, that's what they called them back in the days of Judea, to force the contributions to go around and make sure they get the Cummins branches <laughs> and and pace off your wheat and, and, and get a portion of your labor because you're all back in the bondage of Egypt again. Now, that's hard for a lot of people to accept. I don't. They don't want to accept 
that they're back in the bondage of Egypt. But they are. Uh, People seem to be missing that Jesus Christ was king. And at Pentecost, his followers found the courage through the Holy Spirit to stand up for Jesus as the Christ, as the King, as the Messiah, the anointed King of Judea. And the remnants of that kingdom of Israel, because, you know, Israel was out there somewhere in the heat fields of society. They were out there, you know, the Danites and Jutes and Issachs and all these people that were to the north. But, of course, we have to remember that Israel was to be priest to all nations, to show all nations how the kingdom of God works by a nation, a peculiar people that operated by faith, hope, and charity, not by force, fear, and fealty, which most other nations operate. That's the way, that's the way England operates. That's the way Spain operates. That's the way Canada operates. You know, that, that they, they have to pay in. They're all based on forced offerings. They're all collateral for debt. Everybody born in uh, China or born in Taiwan or born in the United States or born in Canada or born in Mexico and they register their surety for debt. That And, uh, and that's just the way it is. Their surety for debt. Because all these countries are in debt. All of them. There's... A, you know, a couple dozen years ago there were a few countries that are operating in the black. But they've all been conquered. And they've all had Federal Reserve systems set up. What does that have to do with anything? Another whole story. We don't want to go down that uh, road or we, we will miss this. The point is, is that Rome had accepted Christ as the king when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, some say the procurator of Rome, he was the husband to the favorite granddaughter of Tiberius Caesar, who was in contact with her grandfather, who had retired from Rome because of his health at that particular time. And some say she had told him about this great healer, Jesus Christ. You know, the historical record shows that Pontius Pilate and his wife went off and started churches. That's what they ended up doing. He was put into exile and he was he became a Christian. There's evidence that even Caiaphas eventually repented and became a Christian and was put to death because of that. Now, is that in the Bible? No. But that, I mean, that's what the historical record kind of intimates. It's a long ways back, so it's difficult to say, and your faith shouldn't hinge on these things. Because you, re- you know, we can look at history, but ultimately it's the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Are you living by faith, hope, and charity? Or are you living by force, fear, and fealty, are you living by taking away from your neighbor? Is that the way you provide for your parents, or for yourself, or your student loans? Well, then you're not a Christian. You're not following Christ. If we define a Christian as someone who follows Christ, then you actually have to follow him. You don't just say you're following him. You don't just say you believe. You don't just say, Lord, Lord. But you actually do what he says. Because that's what he said. That's what he said his doctrines are. The imperial proclamation written on ebony wood that was covered in plaster showed white background with black letters saying Jesus was the king of the Jews, the citizens of Judea. So he was a king. Pilate said it. 
And the Pharisees didn't like that. They objected to that. They wanted that taken down. And he said he wasn't going to take it down. And they said, well, you know, then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate in John 19.21, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pontius Pilate, what did he say? <laughs> Very next verse, verse 22. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You know, let it be written, let it be done. And so Jesus Christ was the king. And this is why the apostles got to work daily in the temple. Hated by the Pharisees, but protected by the Romans, at least at first. But eventually we would see the fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Pharisees. We also see a scattering of the, Jew, uh, the, the Christians who came out, according to reports of Josephus, there were this large number of people came out singing. And who were those? Those were the Christians. They left everything behind. They didn't even take their coat. They didn't need to because they had invested in the kingdom of God. All their money wasn't in the treasury in the temple. It was in the hearts and minds of the people that we see Paul going out in Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus helping people in Syria to take care of one another, to provide for one another. This, of course, meant on Pentecost that the apostles and the 120 in the upper room, and, and which probably included the 70 according to most of the writings that I can find, you know, Aquila and Priscilla were part of the 70, part of the, the people in the upper room, they were appointed a kingdom. That, that's what Jesus said, you know, in Luke twelve thirty two. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Give you the kingdom. And Luke twenty two twenty nine. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me. But he also explains that you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. We're supposed to set the captive free, return every man to his position, every man to his family. That's not where you're at now because your churches aren't doing what Christ said. They, the strange doctrines that have come in and there's a whole history of them coming in and we're chronicling that history and offer to you for free. But it's a lot of work. But really, the critical thing is that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not going to hear what I'm saying if you're not willing to let the light in. And if you don't let the light in, the Holy Spirit will not follow. If you love the darkness, if you love the deception of the world, if you want to imagine that you're following Christ, you'll be like the many that Jesus talks about that don't even know him. They profess him with their lips, but they don't know him. You know, when you read Paul say, you have to confess with your lips and then in order to be saved, and everybody goes there, and it says, Paul preached Christ first. He wasn't straying from the doctrines of Jesus. He's making a point about things that are difficult to understand. But if, you, if you're following the doctrines of Paul without the doctrines of Jesus Christ, you're going to go down rabbit holes from which there are no return. You know, we always talk about rabbit trails. Well, rabbit holes are different. 
rabbit trails go out in a circle and come back to where they were. That's a good thing. It gives you a lay of the land. Rabbit holes, well, they end up in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> you don't want to end up there. Matthew twenty-one forty-three. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The fruits thereof of the kingdom of God. The fruits thereof of the kingdom of God is love and liberty and righteousness. If you don't have liberty, you probably also don't have righteousness. You've probably been coveting your neighbor's goods and gone back and become entangled in the yoke of bondage. Done deal. This was Christ's prophecy to the Pharisees. And of course, it was fulfilled. John 19.15 But they cried out, Away with him! Referring to Jesus. With him, crucify him! Pilate says unto them, Shall I crucify your king? Because he, he sees him as the king. He hasn't tried him. He's washed his hands of the charges. And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. At that moment, Christ took the kingdom from them by the words of their own mouth. That's what he says, that they would condemn themselves out of their own mouths. And they did. Because the church, the, the apostles and the 120 in the upper room were the ecclesia, the called out, which we, we've added a lot to our article on ecclesia, so that you can see the ecclesia is not just an assembly. People who are telling you that an ecclesia is just an assembly, it's just a, some people gather together in their, in their homes. No, it's not. That's not what the word meant. It's not what it meant for at that time, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, 600 years before, that word was specifically a small group, a governmental group, a political group. Now, they weren't to be like the ecclesias of Athens or the ecclesia of Corinth because they weren't to exercise authority one over the other. The Sanhedrin, the 70 that Jesus appointed were not a legislature. The 70 that Moses appointed were not a legislature to make laws for you. They were to know the law. They were to share the law, explain the law, define the law according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, each elder, each family, they have their own priest and king in their own family. They need to recognize the law, recognize the meaning of the words. And they can only do that if they let the light in. If they want to continue to sit in darkness, they're not going to see it. They're going to object. Oh, no, no. You're doubting. You're making me doubt my faith. No, I want you to have the faith of Christ. Not the faith of identity religion. Not the, the faith of belief in the idolatry of your imagination. So... Pontius Pilate was appointed by Caesar. And he said Jesus Christ was king. And the apostles worked daily in the temple. We see in Acts 2.46, And they continuing daily with one accord, because they all came into one accord with the Holy Spirit, in the temple, breaking bread, dividing bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Because it was not 
the dainties of rulers. It was the grace of love. The grace of charity. Real charity. Not legal charity. Real charity. This is the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God works. If that's not what you're doing, you should be seeking that. And you seek that by sitting down with others and trying to love them as much as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because all the other commandments will start to make sense to you and start falling into place. This, The church was the social safety net of Christ. It was not like the ones offered through the synagogues of the Pharisees. It's not like the ones offered through the governments of the world. The the Pharisees, which the parents of the blind men were, were afraid to lose. They were afraid to lose access to that social safety net through the synagogues that was funded by the central treasury of Corbin. And occasionally, supposedly, you had the backup of the king. It's treasury too, the gastrophone. But what your kings have done is borrow against the future of your children in order to provide you with the benefits today. Which, of course, if you go read our article on Sabbath, knows anybody doing that is not keeping the Sabbath. So, Christians cared for one another in a daily ministration of pure religion, unspotted by the world. That's religion is how you take care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the men who use force. That's a process to get to that point, but you're running out of time. Because that other system made the word of God to none effect. The system of Christ, the institution of Christ, which returned every man, you know, set the captive free, returned every man to his family and to his possessions, that made the word of God to effect. The, the logos of God to effect. The rationale of God to effect. It's a rationale we see in all the prophets. From Cain and Abel to Nimrod to Pharaoh to Moses, to Abraham. I had to go back to Abraham. <laughs> I don't want to skip Abraham. Because he, he left Haran and then left Ur, or left Ur then left Haran, went out into the desert and set up altars. And again, altars were men. Those stones were a gathering of men. The gathering of stones is a gathering of men. Same word in the Hebrew. If you don't know that... You may be led off to think that, oh, we're supposed to pile up rocks and burn up sheep and make God happy. Where's the logos in that? Where's the rationale in that? There is no rationale in that. That's superstition. That's not what it says. You've unmoored the metaphor and created a false doctrine. A lie. That God's happy when you pile up stones and burn up sheep. Or God's happy when you say magic words. God wants you to think differently. Turn around your thinking and seek the righteousness of God. There were still the synagogues of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. That's what the Bible says. I'm quoting right out of the Bible. The synagogue of Satan is the synagogue of the adversary. That's 
That's the gathering of people who are doing the opposite of what Jesus Christ said. They're not living by faith, hope, and charity. They're living by force. Those synagogues at the time of, you know, I'm answering this Paul Y that, you know, 20 years later, there were still synagogues around that were trying to operate according to the synagogue of Satan. The adversaries of Christ. They're still depending on, I mean, they were still doing it in Corinth. Everybody wasn't Christian in Corinth. They were still doing it in, in, in parts of Galatia, but the Christians were not. The Christians had set up their own system. They were going the way of Christ. We need to, the modern church is not leading you in that way, but the church established by Christ will always lead you that way because that's how you know it's the church established by Christ because it has his doctrines. So anyway, until we meet again, peace on your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.